Welcome to the She Built This podcast, where we are sharing the stories of professionals and entrepreneurs who are on a mission to create the new norm by following their dreams and making them a reality. I'm your host, Emily Aborn, and together we are inspiring, growing, and giving you the tools you need to bring ideas to life so you can build whatever this means for you. Hi, everyone, and welcome here. I think we should take a nice deep breath together. It has been a busy month in February and here in New England we've had a really chilly two weeks but we are about to turn our calendars over to March which for all of us I think inspires a little hope for warmer days, longer days, soon to be swimming in the summer days. It's really exciting. Uh, you know what else has me excited right now besides spring is last week on one of the particularly chillier of the days, I was really missing my mom. So I started to look at flights and she lives in um, Charlotte, North Carolina with my dad and one of my younger brothers. And I found like the perfect flight, the ideal flight times, ideal price, ideal days of the week. So I, was, I said to myself, you know what? I am going to do it. And I did it. I booked it. And I had like this just sense of elation while I was booking it. And I have to say that that is a little odd for me because I don't really enjoy travel or I guess at least that's the story that I've told myself for the past eight years or so now. Maybe that's changed, Um, but I'm really, really excited for this trip. I have personally lived in Charlotte twice and I'm really looking forward to going back and seeing the city, getting inspired to write and reflect, playing games with my parents, catching up with some old pals, maybe uh, talking to my little brother and staying open to just like whatever happens while I'm there. So I'm really, I'm and of course, the warmer weather that is going to be waiting there for me. Um, and Jason and I, my husband, we have some other little adventures planned for this year, and I'm, I'm really excited and looking forward to those as well. I just feel like this trip to Charlotte is kind of going to be what kicks it all off for me. So that's the feeling of spring being around the corner. And if you don't live somewhere highly wintry, you might not really understand that feeling of excitement. Or if you really like winter, which I know is definitely applicable to a few of you. But for me, the coming of spring is like this undercurrent of finally having something really fresh and new to look forward to after mud season, that is. Um, That all said, things have been really exciting here on the day today as well. And I'm going to share why. And then, of course, we'll get into the episode, which is the reason that you're here in the first place. Uh, So number one, I've been reading and learning a ton. I've already read eight books this year, and I've got so many more good ones on my list. I can't wait. I read a lot of books that my podcast guests write. So by way of interviewing somebody every week, and many of them are authors, I tend to read a lot in preparation for their episodes. And I jokingly wondered for a moment if I should maybe think about renaming this this podcast to the She Read This podcast, but maybe that'll be my second uh, my second podcast. Um, anyway, lots of what I'm reading. I've noticed that there's this common thread, and I actually didn't see this before. But the common theme of what I have been reading is stories, the stories that we tell ourselves, the stories we tell about other people in our lives, the stories we tell about money, which we're actually going to get into today, the stories we tell about time and what it means and what it means to the tasks that we do throughout our day. 
So needless to say, I've been digging around a lot in my own life for my stories and they've been coming out in such interesting ways. So it's been like really fun and fascinating. And of course, I'm just overall always excited about books and learning and growth. Not that like January 1st is some definite starting line, but if it were, which I kind of feel like it sort of was this year, um, I feel like I've made a lot of progress since that starting line when the New Year's Day gun went off. So the second thing that I am excited about is that we had our first She Built This focus strategy session last week. And if you are like, what on earth is that? A lot of people had that question. The way that it worked was that three people came with issues and challenges they're facing in their business, and our VIP members showed up as experts to help them strategize and get clarity in those areas. And so it was like a lot of group think. It was actually like a mini condensed version of kind of what we do in our peer group, or a little bit like what we do in our peer groups, but with some twists. Um, And it was awesome. If I do say so myself, Uh, I have to give a really big thanks to Lindsay Taylor, the owner of Naughty Good Bites and an amazing graphic designer. She was the one that initially came up with the idea in the first place. And I wanna say that this was a really good example for me of how when we try something new, it can feel really hard and awkward and uncomfortable and frustrating. This was a totally new thing for me. Um, and I found that implementing it was actually very challenging. It was it was hard to get everyone to see my idea and clearly explain how it would work. And then the actual logistics were a little bit bumpy. But sometimes the only way you can learn what works and what doesn't work is by experimenting and giving it a fair go and just sending your idea out into the world and seeing what happens. And then, of course, you use the feedback and the outcome to do better next time. And I have to say that even though this was a really challenging learning process, it ended up being so great. And so the next time, I know that it's just going to be absolutely amazing. And don't worry, you will definitely hear about the next one because it, it was open and f- free to those who were participating just to watch or those uh, sharing their struggles and challenges. And last but not least, I am also really excited by this week's review of the week, which was written by Piper the Piper, and it was in regards to last week's episode with Anna and John Mann of The Go-Giver Marriage. Piper the Piper says, a pleasure. What a wonderful podcast. Really great content and great interviews. I listened to the most recent podcast episode today regarding marriages, and I texted my partner immediately afterward. I just want to say a huge thank you to this reviewer and to all of you who have taken time recently to write me reviews and also share texting your partner and sharing and saying that they need to listen to an episode too. It means so much to me. And as I always say, reviews are helping me to build this. Uh, It helps me get great guests and also reach the hearts and ears of more people so that we can share more about the She Built This community with them and get them on board with what we're doing, which is how I believe we will change the world together. Uh, So if you need help, writing a review, you know where to find me. I'm a pro at walking people through people through it. You can just send me an email, emily at emilyaborn.com or um, visit the shebuiltthis.org website and you can find all my information there. And pardon my rudeness, if this is your first time here, uh, if you don't know, my name is Emily Aborn and I'm the owner and founder of She Built This, a woman's entrepreneurship community where being you is encouraged and we're here to help bring that out in you, to help you share that you with the world and connect with others who actually want to get to know you for you. 
It's super fun. Uh, I'm also a content writer. And so what you end up getting on this podcast is a mix of inspiring stories, life lessons, marketing and writing strategies, education, and all of this without feelings like hustle, hustle, do, do, should, should, because I don't believe that we need any more of that in our lives. Do you agree? Um, So if this is your first time here, I also just want to invite you to follow, subscribe, do whatever it tells you to do on your podcast app because you want to make sure that you can hear these episodes when they come out every Wednesday morning. I imagine if this is your first time here, you're going to want to stick around. So you might as well just follow or subscribe now. Uh, Okay. On to today's guest and episode. I first heard today's guest, Ed Combs, on Farnoosh Tarabi's So Money podcast. And as I was listening and hearing him speak and share about his book, The Healthy Love and Money Way, as well as uh, attachment theory around money, I thought it would be so amazing to have him on the podcast during our month of relationships, because that's what we've been focusing on in February. Because money can be a huge piece of a relationship that is particularly hard to navigate And sometimes I think we don't even, we can't even exactly figure out why that is the case. Personally, I have a long, windy money journey, which maybe someday I'll share with you in its entirety. But essentially, I'll just, I'll give you it in a nutshell. It's a rags to name brand rags story. I will say that I can vividly remember the feeling of being in the grocery store at, you know, with my three brothers and my mom, knowing that she was spending more money on food than she would have liked to. Like the length of our receipts probably could have broken Guinness World Records. And in reading Ed's book, I was able to come up with a lot of stories um, throughout my life, though I'm truthfully just getting started. Um, But he really recommends, and you'll hear in this episode, that you kind of map out your money timeline and you, you put some voice to some of these stories. So I've been uncovering stories that have held me back, stories that have propelled me forward with money, stories that I'm like, oh, that is why I react or respond in certain ways when my husband tells me about a particular bill. Or likewise, when I tell him how much I spent at the grocery store, there's a story underneath that too. Um, So it's really fascinating stuff to witness and learn about. And it's not always comfortable. It's not always fun. Uh, But I do hope that after this conversation, you'll feel inspired to pick up a copy of Ed's book and maybe some other tools and then start the conversation and exploration with your partner or some friends and really get to work unpacking some of these things hidden in your past that I think will shed a lot of light on why you do what you do. And I'll say this episode is specifically in relation to money, but it's so far reaching and rippling into all parts of our lives. Ed is a wealth of knowledge, pun intended, and also bringing it full circle, he is from Charlotte, North Carolina as well. He loves helping couples to foster financial intimacy and is internationally recognized thought leader in financial therapy who's been cited by the Wall Street Journal, the Associated Press, Time, and CNBC. He leads couples through therapy from financial despair and frustration into financial financial intimacy and connection using the latest in love and brain science. He earned master's degrees in business counseling and financial planning. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist, certified financial planner, and certified financial therapist. He is the founder of HealthyLoveAndMoney.com, an organization on a mission to help couples transform their relationship through learning, healing, and growing. He offers books, courses, blogs, and podcasts through his website, all aimed at helping couples understand where their relationship and money challenges come from and then what they can do to change it. 
So I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed our conversation. Hi, Ed, and welcome to the She Built This podcast. Thanks, Emily. I'm so excited to be joining you today. I am also excited. Um, To get started, you have a really fascinating background story. So you went from being a firefighter to being a financial therapist, and I would love to hear how that happened. Yeah, well, it's quite a journey to go from firefighter to financial therapist, but you know, the, the short story is I'd sit around the fire station and hear the guys complain about two things, and that was their wives and money. And being a young, impressionable guy, I thought, man, I really don't want to have that problem when I grow up. How do I fix that? Uh, I probably didn't articulate it quite that clearly at the time, but, you know, I sat to reading personal finance books like How to Buy Your First Home for Dummies and so on and so forth. Well, fast forward five years, I meet my wife and she's finishing up dental school. I'm actually ready to start getting out of firefighting and I thought, well, what am I going to do with myself? And I got really interested in personal finance. And so I thought, well, maybe I'll be a financial planner. I'd never heard of that before, but had learned about the field. And so I thought, okay, that's what I want to do. I get to help people with money. That would be great. Well, after four or five years and earning my MBA and CFP, I realized now I know how money works, but just telling people what to do with money doesn't always seem to be so helpful. I was perplexed. So I went back to school to become a therapist, naively understanding what they do and have been on this incredible journey of understanding mental health and relationship health and how do you foster that. And so now I get to integrate and bring together the best of both mental health counseling, relationship counseling, right alongside financial planning and get to work with people in a really deep way around their relationship with money. And so now I'm a financial therapist. And consequently, putting out financial fires. <laughs> yes. But yes. I love it. I love that you kind of yes. blazed, blazed your own trail. I'm, I promise I'm done with the fire puns now. But you sort of just kind of decided to like put these pieces together and create this. I'm sure it existed, but um, I have never heard of it. So I, I find this awesome and fascinating. And then what led you to write your book, The Health, Love, and Money Way? How long into your journey did that sort of start to take hold. Yeah. So I had, uh, there's a little bigger backstory here. Most people wouldn't know this, but I was actually a pretty average student in high school and I never even really thought I would go to college. So the fact that I have three graduate degrees now is still perplexing to me, but it was in that last graduate degree, I was working on my doctorate and was so frustrated with the process and everything that was going on. And I just threw up my hands and was like, I can't do this anymore. What am I doing? And a Facebook ad popped up and said, write your first book in 30 days. And I was like, yeah, that's what I need to do. You know, distraction, squirrel (laughs) moment. (laughs) Totally. I mean, I knew I had a book brewing inside of me. And so um, I signed up for that Facebook program. It was probably $99 or something. And it was a super simple formula. But man, I just, once I sat down to start writing, it just flowed out. And, you know, a lot of ideas have been brewing for a long time. And the big thrust of the book and healthy love and money is telling my story of how I've gotten to where I'm at, but also helping people start to see how the role of psychology and specifically attachment theory plays into the way that we experience and relate around money. 
Yeah. So this brings me to a great question. And then I want to get into kind of like what your, what your unique approach is around that attachment theory and, and psychology. But why is money often this topic that is so hard to talk about? You know, it's actually a pretty obvious answer once once you land on it, but it's right under our nose that, and that's what makes it so hard to see is we all grow up in families that are interacting with money. And that would be all well and good if everyone got along well around finances in family life. But that's not the case. There's usually some mix of anger, shame, anxiety, mm -hmm. resentment around money, right? And so those emotional states and relationship dynamics with money and then we don't fully account for how that's impacting us but then when we grow up and become adults and we're trying to make plans for the future coordinate with our intimate partner uh, generally just feel more at ease around money we have all these old emotional memories around money that are driving the present day fears and anxieties and reactions that we're having yeah, and I imagine that some of these money stories you help people to kind of like excavate and bring to the surface so that they can start looking at them, you know, in, in the present day and not just when you're standing in the grocery store with your mom feeling like she's stressed out because she has four kids' mouths to feed and it's too expensive. <laughs> that's exactly right. And that's such a genuine example, right, is because those first money experiences are so impressionable for kids because they have no money template right and so you have high emotional intensity the child has no self-awareness or self-reflectivity about like why mom would be so overwhelmed with money and so you have these experiences in the grocery store where you're asking for the candy bar at the checkout line totally a normal kid thing to do and you get put that back what's wrong with you we can't afford that what do you feel in your body, right? This is this shutting down, like, I can't ask for what I want. What? Ah. And so we internalize those over experiences over and over. And, you know, recently I was working with a couple where uh, the husband very clearly remembered going clothes shopping with his mom and his older brothers. And he was very sensitive to her emotional stress. And so his accommodation was to uh, shut down his own needs while his brothers would be loading up the clothes for back to school shopping. Mm. So the way that that ended up playing out is he married a woman who had no problem shopping. And what do you think happens when she goes shopping? <laughs> I, imagine, I imagine that's very fun. <laughs> yeah, let's just say there's some major resentment and anger that sparks out and comes out in less than loving ways. So, but that was all under the surface and neither of them had fully connected with that. And what was so beautiful in working with this couple and this pattern shows up a lot in my practice, but they were able to connect with each other from a place of deep empathy when they could see that it was really unresolved emotional pain. And this couple, fortunately, like in being able to see that it just shifted things so dramatically. And you know, there, he was also able to understand where some of her shopping patterns came from as well, mm -hmm. where shopping had been used as a source of emotional soothing based on some early family losses that she had had. Other family members would take her out shopping when she would feel upset or overwhelmed um, by the, the past losses. What I love about this unique approach is it really takes the judgment out of things and the it kind of like 
takes the intensity of the situation down and you're you're looking at like, okay, but where did this even come from? Because it's not the person's fault. You know, like nobody wants to have a bad relationship with money and nobody wants to have that be the subject of argument in their marriage or in their relationship. So it's asking those deeper questions and getting to the root of like why this is really still popping up in your life now. Um, and so in taking that approach, can you talk us through like, what these attachment styles are and like maybe even what they look like when it comes to our money, how they can show up in our relationships. Yeah, I'd be happy to. So a quick overview. A lot of people haven't heard of attachment theory. And so we have the broad field of psychology, which is the study of how the mind works. And then we have a layer down counseling, psychology or mental health counseling. And then within that area, uh, there's the study of human growth and development. And one of the major models or understanding of that is attachment theory. It's been around for about seven decades, so it's really well-researched. And what it looks at is how do caregiving, repeated caregiving interactions start to set relationship templates in developing children's minds and, and brains? And then how does that get carried forward into adult relationships? Right? So that's the very 50,000-foot view of attachment theory. And in the research, what they have found is very clear patterns of ways that children show up in relationships depending on their caregiving environment. And so the, the four broad categories are securely attached, insecure, anxious, insecure, avoidant, and insecure, disorganized. Wait, why are there three bad ones and one good one? I <laughs> know. <laughs> it's such a bummer. Uh, if it makes you feel any better, about 50 to 60% of the population is securely attached. So the scales are balanced that way. Um, but really what happens is securely attached patterns, people generally have a positive view of themselves and a positive view of others. They expect that they'll be able to be taken care of in both times of emotional distress as well as pleasure. Right? So these are people that experience high quality relationships. It's not to say that they don't ever step on each other's toes and that there's mis not misunderstandings in relational needs, but they get repaired. They get acknowledged. What happens on the insecure continuum of uh, attachment patterns is either the anxious pattern or the avoidant pattern. Disorganized kind of blends those two together. So if you understand anxiously attached is the person that has kind of a lower view of themselves and a more positive view of other people, they're always wanting to be in relationship, but never really sure that they're connecting or being connected with well. And so they'll do a lot of clinging, needy, jealous type behavior to try to maintain control of the relationship and keep things close, right? So they're relationally anxious. And this comes out of a caregiving environment where the parent is not able to really understand the emotional needs and timing of that child. So the parent can be either overly involved or under-involved, not quite, a, quite enough involvement to really show the child that they're there and get them. Now, the other side of that compensation you could have um, is the avoidant attachment where they, they're the self-reliant type. You can't possibly understand what I need. I wouldn't, why would I bother disclosing what's going on with me? You're not going to be of help to me anyways. And so relationships are threatening. Now, this doesn't mean that there is still relational anxiety, but the way that they adapt to it is by becoming more self-sufficient. So um, that fourth category is the disorganized. They vacillate back and forth. 
Now, would an avoidant, uh, I'm probably going like super in the weeds here, but would, yeah. an, av- would an avoidant um, style not want someone to be anxious or would that actually be like better for them? So, you know, that's what's kind of interesting is oftentimes an avoidant and anxious person will partner together because initially what happens is that anxiously attached person is going to pr- do a lot of the pursuing in the relationship to grad- try to get things to work. And that feels good for the avoidant initially because it's a breath of fresh air. Like I don't have to work to make the relationship work. This person's really interested in me. This is great. But what happens over time is that the the rule of reciprocity in relationship doesn't develop. Right? Where the anxious person is continuously having to pursue to keep the avoidant person engaged in the relationship and at some point the anxious person get, becomes very fatigued by that. Yep. The avoidant person also feels chronically intruded upon. They don't have their own space and their own autonomy. And so that's the the rub or bind there in that that pairing or bonding. Yeah, this sounds like a recipe for disaster. So so what um would it like how can learning this help us to basically move through some of these attachment styles and get to a healthier place? Well, I guess my my pre-question, I am by the way, notorious for asking like five questions in one. So I apologize. No problem. Um, but can you go from being anxious to being secure? Like, is that a, a leap that you can make? Yeah, that's the really great news about the ongoing research, both um, in the academic setting as well as in clinical practice. And it's why I've landed in this area is you can go from anxious or avoidant or disorganized attachment into more and more secure attachment patterns. And because it's been so well documented, what are these patterns of healthy relationship um, interaction? You can start to study and learn and evaluate and see like, oh, oh, this is that anxious pattern. Oh, this is that avoidant pattern. This is what that's about. And what we can also start to recognize is these are not chosen patterns. As a child, you did not sit there on the shelf of relationship pattern options and start pulling them off the shelf and say, I like that one. Yeah. I'd like like to be an anxious mess. That sounds fantastic. I'd I'd like to ask a lot of questions. I'd like to be, you know, always, you know, apologizing for doing something wrong. I'd like to, you know, my hand is raised. (laughs) I feel called out. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Well, uh, if it makes you feel any better, I'm a, a anxious attachment in recovery, moving towards secure attachment. But what happens is very pragmatic and, and real. So I'll give you an example from my my life with my wife just this week. So I'm more on the anxious side. She's a little more on the avoidant side. Sorry, love. We've talked about this. It's a thing. We're both moving more and more into secure. And, and here's the other thing is all of these people can be incredibly wonderful people. They'd want the best for the relationship but they may not know how to get there at that intuitive level. They may even intellectually be able to say, I know I need to do this. I know I need to do that. But attachment mm-hmm. style is more than a cognitive process. It's a an emotional, um, visceral process. It's a automatic and intuitive. Like Just like you kind of learn how to ride a bike. It's like, I can describe how to ride a bike or I can actually ride a bike. Relationships are more like riding the bike than knowing how a bike how to ride a bike. So really experiential. Much- yeah, that makes total sense. Okay. So you asked earlier, how does this show up in money life? All right. So 
Uh, my wife and I are on the way to our financial planning review meeting this week, and we've got a number of different moving pieces going in our financial life right now. And we get there to the financial planner's office, and we're sitting there in the car, and it's like, what are we? Okay, we're trying to get squared up. What are we talking about? Where are we going? And and kind of almost paradoxically, but she had some of her own fin financial anxiety. And she's like, I just don't know how this is going to work. This is going to work. This is work. This is going to work. And like, I feel myself actually start to shut down because I'm thinking I can't please her. I can't make her happy. We've been here before. No matter what I do or say, I'm I'm stuck. So shutting down. And then I have this like moment where it just kind of comes up and it's like, oh, wait, Ed, she's not attacking you. It's about her. Mm. It's about her anxiety and her concerns about how to keep managing all these pieces that she has responsibility for. So once I had that um, intuition come back to me, I was like able to kind of almost pop back up and say, wow, you're feeling really anxious about all these moving pieces and we're going into the planner and we need, you want to feel like we can talk about it effectively, right? Because part of it is she's also very used to being able to do everything herself. And so it's like I, she was feeling overwhelmed by like not being able to all do it on her own. So being able to recognize these patterns, where they come from, stay engaged. Another big word that I like to use is financial empathy, which is being able to feel into the other person's experience. And this is part of that, like the avoidance dilemma is they're not really well connected with feeling words. They're very connected with functional terms, though. Yeah, so I can see how you have to kind of approach it differently depending on who you are. Um, I want to go back to the intuition piece. So for somebody that, for maybe the avoidant, um, or for anybody that either doesn't understand what intuition feels like or doesn't know how to take a minute to get to that intuitive place, what are your recommendations for how they can start to do that? Oh, that's a really great question, Emily. I'm glad you're asking that. Uh, go ahead. I'll give I'll give you an example. So, yeah. or it, it it might not relate to this, but um, someone once asked me. I I was noticing that in a particular networking meeting, the person was always turning the attention back to themselves. And like, then they, they reached out and asked like, how can I make sure that I'm not doing that? Like you always talk, it's one of the guidelines I have in the group is like, when someone else is talking and sharing, we don't turn the attention back to ourselves. You know, we keep it about the person sharing. Right. And she's like, well, I don't even know how to do that. And I was like, well, I don't either. I just know <laughs> that, that you need to. So like how, I guess, how, what's your tip, I guess, for starting to get to to that place where we're like, okay, pausing, noticing, and connecting maybe with what our intuition is telling us. And maybe you don't have a tip yet, and that's okay too. Maybe no, that's I, your next book. <laughs> yeah, no, I do. Like, thank you for giving that more practical example. And I think this is where oftentimes culturally we say, well, you got to figure that out yourself. But I think when we can have a very caring, empathic relationship where you can mirror back and say, and I'm just going to call the woman Kathy you may be able to say, Kathy, you're turning it back towards yourself, hmm. right? So you've already started to lay that groundwork of like, this is how it works in this group. You've started to name it with um, the other person. She's receiving it. She's like, oh, okay. And so this is what's called mirroring. And it's about reflecting back what that person is doing or experiencing. And mirroring helps us to then internalize and connect with what's actually going on inside of us. 
So oftentimes in the patterns of attachment breakdown, there's a deficit in being mirrored or seen. And so Kathy, we're calling her likely in her own developmental experiences, had to like make things about herself in order to feel seen or heard. So that could be even a reflective question is, Kathy, do you struggle feeling like you're not being heard or seen? Because that's, I do see that pattern a lot in my practice is um, when children don't feel seen or heard, one of the adaptations they do will be chronic over-talking or turning it back to themselves instead of being able to handle reciprocity in the relationship. Yeah, I really love that, uh, tapping into mirroring. And I will say, mirroring almost takes a little bit of the stress and responsibility out of being empathetic because now it's just simply your job to like listen you know <laughs> and 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 hear what the other person is saying so absolutely um all right i am curious to know if there is a partnership where one person just loves to spend and one person is an avid saver can those two styles be, can those two uh, spending habits be compatible with one another? Absolutely. Now that might surprise you initially, you wouldn't think that. But I think when you peel back those deeper layers and understand what's driving that behavior, oftentimes there's an underlying degree of compulsivity on both sides. So what, what the couple has to start to do is to dig deeper into where does this come from? Where in my past, what am I trying to prevent feeling or try to feel more of, but maybe I'm never really connecting with? Really goes back to these stories. Yeah. You know, we all have a personal relationship with money and we all have a money history. And depending on how you're oriented in the world, you may be either very present or future oriented, which discredits how the past has shaped you. The other challenge, though, some people become so hyper-focused on what's happened to them in the past that they can't enjoy the present or the future, right? So when we look at mental health, generally what we're wanting is for someone to be able to live primarily in the present, but be able to intentionally take time to become reflective about drawing lessons from the past, integrating them into how they're living in the present, and then also being able to project into the future, where is it that I might want to be going with my life? giving direction, right? So we can live across the time horizon um, when when we've really grown and matured psychologically. Hmm. Um, all right. We have a lot of entrepreneurs and entrepreneur people who support entrepreneur entrepreneurs listening. <laughs> and you know, when you're in business for yourself, the goal is of course to do what you love and follow your dreams and live your passions, but it's also to make money. So one thing I want to get your thoughts on is when it comes to being, let, let, let's say in sending a proposal to somebody and you're feeling like you're you're struggling with how to price yourself because you know what you should be charging, but you don't feel comfortable charging that price yet. So what kinds of things do you see pop up maybe in the entrepreneurial world, maybe in, maybe for even people negotiating raises and their salaries um, where their self-worth is like, really at the root of what's stopping them from getting to that next level? Uh, yeah, age-old dilemma, right? For so many entrepreneurs, I'm certainly in this category and continue to do that work. And I, I do think, you know, at a very deep level, oftentimes you have to confront some of your own shame 
you have to confront where you felt shame in the past and try to start moving that towards resolution and moving towards a healthier sense of self will make asking for the higher dollar um, higher dollar payment uh, more effective, more confident, because it will be coming from a place of self-confidence instead of still with that shame and then kind of that desperation of like, well, I hope that you will pay me. Will you see me valuable? Uh, um. And so especially if you're on that anxious end of the continuum, right, is you're going to see yourself as less valuable than other people. Mm. And so whereas the people on the avoidant end of the continuum can sometimes overvalue or overestimate their value or miss some of the more subtle details. So finding the balance in what's authentic and true for you versus also what's unfamiliar. So looked at through the attachment lens, I would say if you're on the anxious end, let's see what we can do to move you towards the secure end. And in time, also being able to practice asking for the bigger number tolerating the rejection or the no and realizing that it's not no to you it's no to the price it's no to the offering but we can conflate that no to whatever we're asking for as a rejection of self instead of a rejection of offer i've also heard the fantastic advice which is don't write the story of your client's pockets and i'll say this so often when, especially when you have a more difficult money history or money story, or that's been an issue for you in your life, your concept of money when you're sending that proposal is so, it could be completely different from your clients. $2,000 on, on that proposal could be like, oh, sure, please take this off my plate. Whereas to you, it might be like you're dripping sweat and you're like, please say yes, please say yes. So that's another thing to, to kind of help send those bigger numbers out is just not that 2000 is, it doesn't matter. <laughs> well, but, but you're yeah. onto something, right? Is $2,000 by itself, if we can strip all the context away is almost meaningless, right? I mean, exactly. Like you can say right now, $2,000 and already everyone's giving meaning to that. They're trying to figure out, was it $2,000 for this or that? And right, right. Right. $2,000 for a pack of bubble gum. Everyone would say that's ridiculous. I think everyone, maybe there would be someone that said, no, that's actually still a good deal. I mean, it would have to be like amazing bubble gum. It but. would have to be like world-class bubble gum, mind blowing. But, um, right. So there's some off, often generally accepted prices and understandings of value in the marketplace. But what happens for entrepreneurs, especially service-based entrepreneurs that are creating a unique value proposition, they have no anchor or reference points. And we are always using anchor and reference points to justify or rationalize what we're doing. And so when you're creating a unique service offering and you're trying to come up with pricing, especially if you have that financial hesitancy or fear of asking for a bigger number, you're going to go low. So, Do you have any um, advice around, okay, and maybe you don't, and that's okay, but um, how we can, like, when we are in an appointment with our ideal clients, how we can almost like set them up for what they can expect so that it's not like a sticker shock. Do you have any like tips and tricks for doing that? You know, I, I think, know you recently raised your prices, so I'm imagining perhaps you have some experience with this. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I was just reminded in a, in a training that I was in is if you're in a situation where you're negotiating, asking what, what their budget is or what their idea of how much is going to cost, can give you will give you the upper hand in knowing where are they expecting this to be at. 
Um, so that's, you know, I think that's probably a really good way to do it. Um, you also probably want to have be going in with kind of your bottom line of this is what I want to get out of this transaction. And it's being able to price with not just the time that you're going to spend on it, but also the value that you're creating for them. And, and that's such a subjective thing. And I think that's what makes it so difficult is, you know, we do value things differently. And so I think that's also being able to step into that as a place of peace, recognizing it's really okay that people value different things differently. Yeah. But you actually bring up a great point there where it's also about showing them where your values align with one another and showing them how you can help them to achieve that goal that they have too. And Mm -hmm. you're also simultaneously achieving yours. So it's a win-win. I mean, in my mind, sales is not sales. It's (laughs) win-win. When when done right, for sure. Yeah. Um, All right. What's a really practical, tangible action step you like to offer people maybe in a relationship or maybe who just are an individual and they want to start unpacking some of these money stories for themselves? Uh, Something people can put into place right away before they go get that book, which we're going to get to in a minute. Yeah, absolutely. So I call it the money timeline exercise. So just get a simple sheet of paper and draw zero at the beginning of the timeline and, you know, a hundred at the other end, and then just put some hash marks, put your, where you're at on that timeline right now. And then just start trying to fill in money memories. And you're, as you allow your mind to open up to different money memories, they will come. So let them come up and just start putting them on the timeline when they happened. Because what you're working towards is building a more coherent money narrative and a conscious money narrative, right? So this is an ongoing life practice where you can continue to develop your money story and understand where your how your money history is shaping what you have going on. It may also help you validate and connect with either the plethora of money um, challenging experiences you had or money positive, or you may recognize you know what? Oh my gosh, I forgot that I had this good money experience or I felt mm. this. Because I think that's the other thing is, especially if you're trapped in money pain and anxiety, is it kind of clouds over the reality that it's not all bad financially for you. Uh, I've yet to meet anybody that does not have at least a couple of positive money memories. I'm trying to think of what mine are, but I think you're, <laughs> I, I know, I'm sure they're in there. <laughs> no, but I love this concept. It's sort of like, I would picture maybe like a, a thread coming loose on your button, but then as you start pulling on the thread, the whole entire thing is sort of unraveling before you. So you're sort of like, Ooh, there's one, there's one, there's one. And then you have this whole, like, I don't know, spool of thread, I guess, of all of these stories unraveling right in front of your eyes. That's exactly right. And I think that's part of that fear for a lot of people in looking backwards too is the fear of overwhelm by remembering all the things that have happened. And so that that is kind of the therapist in me, drawing the therapist out of me is to say, be gentle with yourself, be kind with yourself, be patient with this process. It's like starting any new exercise regimen where you might get super excited and be like, yeah, I'm going to do my money work. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to get all my money memories up and I'm going to be like, dialed in and I'm going to crush this next meeting. Yeah. And then it's like you do the money timeline exercise and it's like the heart starts fluttering and you get flush in the face and drippy on the forehead. And you're like, Oh, 
I just want to go into a fetal position. Oh, I forgot. I can't remember that this, like this thing happened. Oh, so, you know, be patient with yourself. Don't, you don't have to do all of this in one fell swoop. I think that's a great tip for any self-work that we're doing because there is, oh, once you start deciding that you're going to do the work on yourself, there is always so much, right? And it can feel really overwhelming, but Rome was not built in a day and neither was our self-work. So. Yeah. And I would just say, you know, right. Like I, just so people know, and I have no problem sharing this. I probably didn't accept the validity of counseling and therapy until I was about three or four years into practice. Now this is my new, <laughs> after like three years of grad school of training to be a therapist and then like being in my own therapy, I still had really deep doubts about whether any of this stuff actually really was helpful or not. Oh my goodness. And part of it was, there was a deep unraveling for me. I was locked up much tighter than I realized behind my nice guy facade dash anxious attachment. And so, you know, when you start on that journey of doing self-work, it can be very threatening and overwhelming. And you do have defense mechanisms built up to protect you from looking at the things that have been painful and looking at the deeper why around why things have been the way that they have been, right? You, you're challenging your status quo. And so this self-work is a kind of a continuous and gradual questioning why was my mom this way? Why was my father this way? Why was my brother this way? Why am I this way? How did this make this feel? Me feel? How did it make them feel? What were the larger cultural factors shaping this? What were the gender issues shaping this? You know, so on and so forth. And so it's allowing space to continually open up new and fresh questions that the self-work does unfold over time. And now um, 10 years, I guess really 11 years since I started into grad school to become a therapist. And I'm on podcast advocating doing self-work. And um, you will get to the other side, even if it doesn't feel like it now. I love that. Um, all right. So why don't you let us know how we can find and connect with you online, maybe some of the resources that you offer, and then also um, how to find that book. And I will make sure that all of these links are in the show notes. Yeah. So we talked about my book, The Healthy Love and Money Way, a little bit earlier uh, Amazon is a great place to go and get that. It's available in audible version as well. So if you like listening and not reading, uh, you can grab a copy on Amazon. I'm also very, very excited about the couple's guide to financial intimacy. So maybe you're that person that um, doesn't want to go into therapy, can't get into therapy or uh, whatever your reason. Um, I've packaged all of my best ideas and exercises into one master program that couples can take either self-directed or in kind of a cohort uh, model. And so that's available. You can see that on my website, healthyloveandmoney.com. And the program is called The Couple's Guide to Financial Intimacy. That's great. Um, and I'll make sure that, like I said, those are in the show notes as well as social media so that people can follow along and hear more about your journey as you grow too. That's awesome, Emily. I really appreciate the time to be here and talk with you today. Yeah, thank you so much, Ed. To learn more about She Built This and to join our community and get involved for yourself, visit www.shebuiltthis.org.